Podcast with your host, Nick Jaworski. We bring you the business of recovery because those struggling with addiction need you to be here tomorrow as well as today. Thank you for joining me here on the Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jaworski, CEO of Circle Social Inc., a marketing agency and strategic consulting firm for behavioral health and addiction treatment. Today, we are speaking with Matt Boyle, the CEO of Landmark Recovery. I met Matt a couple years ago when he just had his first facility, and now he's expanded to more than 10 and will have more than 30 over the next year and a half as they're building another 24 facilities um, over the next year or so. So he's done an amazing, phenomenal job of growing the organization. Before we learn more about him, I want to hear from our sponsors, Track 9. As all regular listeners of the show are aware, I'm a huge advocate of clinical outcomes tracking. So I'm proud to have my favorite tracking software, Track9, as a sponsor of this show. Track9 Informatics is a measurement-based care and data analytics tool for substance use disorder and mental health treatment across the continuum of care. It assesses a combination of pathology and resilience factors scientifically proven to be most critical to client success. Track9 identifies which clinicians excel at treating various client symptoms so you can match the clinician best suited to the client's specific needs. Track9 also provides much-needed feedback-informed care loops to help clinicians themselves improve. What's really interesting is that Track9 learns your facility-specific predictors of treatment success or failure and provides treatment failure risk alerts, which can help lower AMAs by as much as 39%. If you listen to my podcast with owner Jared Dempsey, he talks about how different facilities achieve different results based on internal talent, systems, and the unique characteristics of their patient population. Track9 displays program performance versus national averages, which you can use to identify improvement opportunities and support payer negotiations. To learn more, visit www.track9.com. That's T-R-A-C and the number 9 So Matt Boyle is an absolute wealth of knowledge and a lot of people may not have yet heard of Landmark Recovery because they don't go to a lot of conferences, they don't do any kind of national sponsorships, uh, yet Matt has been able to build an incredibly successful business that I think has one of the lowest cost structures in the country and some of the best operations um, overall kind of real estate acquisitions, marketing than anyone that uh, I've seen. And so I was very, very excited to have him on. You know, he was very generous with his time and willing to share not just his strategic insights, but some of the, you know, key KPIs and metrics and how they approach things differently. As Matt will tell you, uh, he actually intentionally tries not to hire people from within the addiction treatment and the recovery space because they do things so differently that he doesn't want that prior knowledge um, or maybe uh, habits about the way things are supposed to be or the way things should be um, to conflict with the way that Landmark is building and growing. He has an incredibly successful model. It's one of the ones that I I think potentially could become one of the real national um, providers across the country. And I think he's got the opportunity to do that um, because of the model he's built and the way he's built it. So really appreciate his time. He was very gracious with a lot of the answers that he was willing to give. And I know that you will all learn a ton from him. So with that, let's jump in. All right. Well, Matt Boyle, super excited to have you on the show. Uh, you just want to jump in and tell us a little bit about yourself and Landmark? Well, I'm not very good at talking about myself, Nick, but um, sure, I'll do my best. I'm Matt Boyle. I'm the Chief Executive Officer of Landmark Recovery. Uh, We are a addiction treatment company. We started in 2016. We are up to nine locations, about 660 beds. Uh, We do inpatient and intensive outpatient addiction treatment in Ohio, Indiana, Kentucky, Oklahoma, and Nevada. Um, We're expanding very rapidly. We have another 10 facilities set to open this year, and our goal is to be at at least 40 facilities by the end of 2023. 
That's awesome. I mean, that's massive growth. And, you know, I've been a huge fan of you and Landmark for a long time, but I don't think a lot of people were necessarily aware of you guys and what you were doing. So maybe starting at the beginning, you know, you kind of entered the space at a time where there were a number of large players already established and they had aggressive growth plans and, you know, addiction treatment is pretty saturated in some markets across the country. What made you think that there was additional opportunity in the space? Yeah, uh, good question. So first of all, I am a horrible self-promoter. I'm not one of the LinkedIn warriors and I don't typically go to conferences because I'm shy and I feel socially awkward meeting new people. Um, so it's not surprising that a lot of people haven't heard of us. Uh, it's probably more of a feature than a bug. So there's that. Um, in terms of why I got into the space, um, my family has had an assisted living business since the 1990s. And uh, I joined the company in 2012. We we're going through kind of a, a family situation and I just wanted to be closer to my dad and my brothers. And I didn't intend to stay for a long time, but I kind of figured out pretty quickly that I enjoyed working in operations more than doing management consulting, which is what I was doing before at the Boston Consulting Group. But I didn't particularly like assisted living and I didn't like it for a couple of reasons. Number one, there was no path to uh, achieving meaningful scale in that industry um, because as it turns out, brand only gets you so far in assisted living, you're only really as good as your local facility, which is of course true to some degree in behavioral health, but um, I would say even more so in assisted living because of the longer sales cycle and uh, it's kind of normal to tour facilities before you make a decision, it's not as urgent. So there's not as much opportunity for brand. And so when I was starting to look into uh, other industries that we could potentially get into, um, I settled on addiction treatment for a number of reasons. Number one, and most importantly, my mother has been in recovery from alcoholism for 25 years. Um, she remarried and my stepfather, Michael Walsh, has worked in the industry since 1998. So he was relatively well-connected. He was president of NATAP. And so it was kind of an opportunity to learn the industry <clears throat> relatively quickly by leveraging his connections. And it was something that I was passionate about. Part of my story is I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky. When I was nine, I had to move in with my father in Boston because there were no viable addiction treatment options in Louisville. And so my mom relocated to Florida where there were options. So from a personal and passion standpoint, uh, addiction treatment definitely aligned with my interests. From a market opportunity standpoint, I actually saw quite an opportunity that, you know, the Affordable Care Act and Mental Health Parity Act kind of overnight created this market where it didn't exist before. You went from like 25% penetration of, of health insurance plans that covered addiction treatment to, you know, virtually universal coverage. And while there were some players that you might consider big. Uh, the consultant in me didn't really see anyone as, as big. I tend to think that you're big when you get 20% plus market share. And that didn't really exist. And, and even the big players that did exist at the time, like American Addiction Centers or, or anything like that, they were really playing a game that I didn't understand. You know, we know in healthcare overall, about 95% of medical providers are, are in network. And uh, many consumers really go out of their way to choose an in-network provider because it's cheaper for them. And I was seeing kind of an out-of-network model that really seemed driven on uh, how much revenue can I squeeze out of these insurance companies before they figure out the game and figure out that maybe I'm not worth what I'm charging. And I also saw kind of this, what I call club med model, where Providers were really focused on, you know, mints on the pillow, having a beautiful building on the beach, and they didn't really seem to be marketing themselves as, as healthcare so much as all-inclusive resorts, and it didn't really make a lot of sense to me. So from the beginning, I made a decision that we were going to be uh, strictly in-network and local. Uh, I really felt strongly from my own experience that it was very disruptive for the patient and the families to have to travel long distances to get healthcare. And again, just looking at this as healthcare, you don't generally go out of state to see your primary care doctor or even to get a hip replacement or you know, a knee replacement or, or surgery like that. So why were people going out of state 
you know, to the beach for addiction treatment. It didn't really seem like it made sense to me. So my hypothesis was that we could carve a niche by being high quality evidence-based treatment that was local and that was affordable to the average American. And as I got into it, I realized that there was another opportunity in the Medicaid space that was just being completely ignored by most of my competitors. Our data showed very early on that about three quarters of everyone who called me seeking help had Medicaid, but there really weren't enough beds. I mean, you know, even from year one, I was hearing stories of moms and dads about, gosh, I wish you took Medicaid. It's like months long to get a bed. And I'm just so worried that my child is going to die. And that really broke my heart. And so starting in 2017, we've really spent a year trying to figure out how to take high quality addiction treatment and deliver it at a price point where we could at least break even at the Medicaid reimbursement rate, which at the time was $220 a day in the state of Kentucky. And we opened our first Medicaid facility. It it actually took us about two years to end up launching it. So we opened it in June of 2019. And by that time, the rate had actually gone up to $295 a day, but my cost structure was already set at 220. So it ended up being a profit center for me, but it, it, it wasn't meant to be that way. And kind of the interesting thing is when I did the math and I looked forward at expansion, I realized that as long as about 50% of my available beds took Medicaid, I could grow very quickly and not worry so much about cash flow because my Medicaid facilities pretty much filled up overnight and didn't require really any incremental marketing spend as long as I was already in a market where I had a commercial insurance facility, um, I could fill my Medicaid facilities just with the leads I was already generating. So it ended up being a really cool way to do well by doing good, as I like to say, um, that you know I could help people who had been neglected by the system and, and give them potentially a new lease on life while also helping to grow my business and, and achieve you know financial stability. So that's kind of how I saw the landscape and, and how things evolved over time. Does that make sense? Yeah. I, I you know, I, one of the things I've always loved about you and Landmark Story is figuring out the Medicaid piece, which, you know, you and I have talked about a number of times and most providers just haven't even tried, right? People tend to complain about the reimbursement cost rather than trying to figure out a way to lower their own operating costs and serve people coming from that demographic. And so I really applaud you guys. I love what Landmark is doing in that regard. There's a lot of things I'd like to explore with what you said, but I think sticking with that first question, anything else that you saw, you know, when you first entered the treatment space that wasn't working with the the larger operators that were currently, you know, in the space? Oh gosh, I could open up a can of worms (laughs) there. Yeah, a lot of things. Number one, the first thing that comes to mind Prior to ACA, the DNA of the industry was really focused on the high end of the market because that's who could afford the services. And the metaphor I like to use is when you're used to building a Ferrari, it's really hard to build a Ford. And I just saw so much wild spending, um, I would call it, between exorbitant marketing that didn't really seem to have a long-term strategic benefit. Things like Reiki providers and massage providers and even helicopter trips to the top of the mountain and just things that struck me as as very expensive and maybe not so beneficial or evidence-based in terms of helping people get better. Exorbitantly lavish facilities. I mean, people spending $20, $30 million on, on a piece of real estate. And you know, as someone who comes from assisted living, where if you hit 7% margin, you're doing great. I was very used to looking at every single nickel of the company and finding ways to save money. So it's kind of uh, cost containment is kind of in my DNA, you could say. And um, I, I really didn't see that discipline in the industry. Again, I, my hypothesis is most people were so used to a world of plenty that they couldn't anticipate or, you know, even react to a world of scarcity, which I think is also tied to why so many people can't imagine making Medicaid work. So that's one thing. Another thing is the actual treatment 
felt almost religious. Again, like I, I don't want to knock Alcoholics Anonymous or 12-step programs because I think that there's a time and a place for them. And, you know, Landmark offers 12-step meetings five days a week at all of our facilities, but it's kind of after our core treatment. We don't hang our hat on, hey, 12-step has to work for everyone and it's the only way. And, you know, use abstinence or get out. We really, myself and Michelle Duby, who's my chief clinical officer, spent, you know, nine months calling through scientific literature to figure out what methodologies actually work to get people well. And we created a systematic approach where, you know, if you go to Oklahoma City or Las Vegas or Indianapolis, if it's two o'clock on a Tuesday, your therapist is teaching you the exact same lesson from the exact same textbook. And that lesson plan has been vetted and designed by a licensed professional and is tied to kind of evidence-based literature. So we actually, we don't just talk the talk about being evidence-based. We've put a lot of time and effort into making sure every single therapist throughout the company is teaching in a way that's faithful to the model. And I'm really proud of that. And, and I think that that discipline is often lacking in our industry. And it's just kind of wild that, you know, again, if you go to get your hip replaced, there's a lot of structure around what the doctor has to do. And there's evidence behind why what he's going to do is going to work. And you can have some sort of confidence that you're not wasting your time and your money and, and, you know, your energy. And I just saw that that it seemed like people were taking a lot of things on faith and on this is how we've always done it and even felt threatened as literature started to come out that maybe contradicted some of the quote sacred cows so that was definitely an opportunity that I saw where where we could be different yeah I agree with all of those assessments right I think uh I mean I think I've even sent you a couple of text messages from time to time just with hilarious advertisements that I come across in the addiction treatment space, like the gold plated, you know, claw footed bathtubs that they have front and center in their ad campaigns. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's not, again, it's not that it's wrong to have, you know, whatever the hands plated copper claw foot tubs or whatever, like it's not that, but it's like, if that's what you're advertising, and that's what you're hanging your hat on. Like, is there any substance, right? And there might be, but your consumer doesn't know that. And, and it's almost like you're encouraging people to make very important healthcare decisions around things that matter more about when you're going on vacation as opposed to like getting well. Right. Right. You know, and I even used to have executives tell me back in the day that, you know, addiction treatment was a, it was actually a hospitality industry. And I mean, that was where it really clicked for me that I knew these guys were moving in the wrong direction, right? They weren't building the right thing for a sustainable environment in an insurance reimbursement world. Whereas I think you saw that right away and that's where you saw the opportunity. Going into the cost reductions, so that's something you guys do extremely well, and I don't know another provider that does as well as you guys do in terms of just operating costs and keeping that low. Can you talk about a little bit more, you talked about the standardization with the clinical programming, maybe expand on that a bit, and then how else you look at your overall operations in terms of reducing costs and making, like making Medicaid work, for example? Sure. You know, I think there's three legs to the stool first leg is centralization. So if you look at the Landmark Recovery Office in Franklin, Tennessee, and you compare it to some of our competitors, you'll see that we have far more centralized services than I would venture anyone else in, in our industry. You know, our call center is completely centralized. So anyone who calls in anywhere in the country, they're going to Franklin and we're uh, talking through the process and scheduling the admission centrally. Our intake team is now centralized. So are, you know, when you come in and, and do your intake at Landmark, you're going to be using video conference with a nurse and then a therapist and then a nurse practitioner, all of whom sit in Franklin. Digital marketing is centralized. Human resources is centralized. IT is centralized. Utilization review is centralized. Um, revenue cycle is centralized. And so the advantage to centralization 
is obviously you end up not needing as many staff at scale because if, if it's decentralized, you might need one person per site. But if it's centralized, you can share one resource across a couple different sites sometimes. And so that reduces your overall staff footprint. Um, it also leads to a more consistent experience and allows the executive team to move more quickly when something is broken because we can see it sooner and we can react sooner because everyone's all in the same office. So centralization, I think, is, is one leg of the stool. The second leg of the stool is policy and procedure discipline and staff utilization. So the biggest thing that is different at a facility, at a landmark facility versus a competitor is kind of our behavioral health techs, which we call patient engagement specialists or PEZs. We have far fewer of them. You know, I, I use an example of, I looked one time at buying a facility in Nashville that had about 60 patients. I had about 60 patients at my facility in Louisville, so very comparable. Whereas I ran with four behavioral health techs a shift, this facility ran with 12. And I think the reason why I was able to get away with, with less staff is because all of my staff knew and had in a computer system the various tasks they were supposed to do for that day, what patients they were responsible for. And they had kind of a playbook of if the patient does X, then you do Y, and this is how we handle that situation. And, and we have invested very heavily in centralized, consistent training to make our staff aware of the playbook and the policies and procedures. And, and the idea is every minute of the day should be orchestrated. And, you know, there should be not that people don't think because you still have to think, but you're not at least reinventing the wheel 10 times a day. Um, and so when organizations kind of lack the discipline or don't take the time to invest in their human capital and in their policies and procedures, you end up with a little bit of chaos at the site level. Uh, and that chaos costs a lot of money because you need a lot more staff to do the same thing when you're relying on your individual staff to make decisions over and over and over again, as opposed to carrying out what they've already been trained to do. So you know, first leg is centralization. Second leg is kind of standardized policies and procedures. And the third leg, which actually contributes the most to the bottom line, is scale. I have one facility that is 38 beds. I have one facility that is 48 beds. All of my other facilities from here on out are uh, 60 beds or more. And I have facilities as large as 160 beds in the pipeline, especially on the Medicaid side. And as it turns out, this is an industry where your fixed costs are relatively high, but your marginal costs are relatively low. So I always use the example of, you know, my cost per patient day across the system is somewhere around $200 to $210, meaning that the, the additional, like basically, if you take all of our operating costs that get allocated out to the facilities and you divide it by the number of patient days, we're at about 210 if you took the exact same cost structure that I have now and you superimposed it on a facility that's about 20 beds, which is my understanding of the industry average, our cost per patient day would actually be about 350. So because our facilities are, are larger on average than our competitors, um, we're able to spread a lot of those costs more evenly across our patient pool, which obviously leads to uh, efficiency. So those are kind of the three legs of the stool, centralization, strict policies and procedures, and scale. So let's start actually, and probably combine that centralization with scale. So we work or have done work with most of the larger providers in the country, and they're very top heavy from a centralization standpoint. So we actually have to work with them to reduce costs at HQ because HQ is usually actually driving most of the revenue loss uh, before we come in. So how do you think of your HQ as a percentage of total revenue? And then how do you kind of think about it in terms of how you distribute the P&L across your facilities? Yeah, so that's also another great advantage to coming from uh, senior housing is most senior housing providers are actually management companies and the actual facilities are owned by investors. So you have to have discipline around uh, what we call management fees 
And in assisted living, it's typically five to 7%. So the management company earns its living off of charging five to 7% of revenues and you, you have to make your profit off of that. And from the beginning, I have charged a management fee, typically around 10% of revenue. And I have had discipline about making sure that we do not lose money at the corporate level. Now, right now, given that we're about to go from nine facilities to 40 facilities, I, I am running closer to about 15, 16% of revenue in terms of, of central office, but our expectation in our budget is to get back down to 10% or so by the end of 2022. And, you know, and there's a couple of things that that does not include. So it doesn't include our marketing. Um, we have a separate fee that we charge for our marketing department. And it also doesn't include construction and development. So we manage our own construction projects. Um, and we have a very intricate dance around opening a new facility. And um, we have a separate developer's fee that we charge to kind of cover our overhead there. But um, in terms of your core operations, the goal is 10%, which given the amount that we centralize is something that I am particularly proud of. Yeah, I can just say, just knowing the numbers of other comparable providers, that, that's very impressive. And then let's look at the standardization leg. So, you know, I think a question mark that comes up a lot of the times, and so one of the things that's unique at Landmark is the level of standardization you have within your clinical programming, right? And you have this really, really um, sophisticated, like well-built out curriculum. And that, as you said, it's delivered the same plate, or it's the same curriculum being delivered at the same time everywhere across all Landmark facilities, which allows you to have more FaceTime, like clinicians more FaceTime with the patients, right? But the criticism that will sometimes come there is, well, aren't you templating this too much? Don't you have to give more leeway to whether it's uh, behavioral health techs or the uh, therapists in the room? What's your response to that balance between standardization and ability to tailor programming? Yeah, it's a good question. And it's a fair point. And look, I mean, I think the most important lesson that I've learned in my business journey is there is no one size fits all and what works well at one organization doesn't need to translate to another organization. And I don't know that there's a right answer. I would say uh, for Landmark, uh, we do have a clinical programming committee and we do give great flexibility to the sites that if they see a way to improve on a lesson plan, they can actually write their own lesson plan, deliver it, report on how it went, and then that new lesson plan gets reported up to the clinical programming committee. And if it went well and if it makes sense, um, we add it as actually an alternative way to teach whatever the lesson is. So it's kind of this nice balance where the framework is always consistent. Um, but we do actually have a process in place where if a therapist feels strongly that she wants to teach something a little differently, there is room to do that. And even if we get no submissions for new lesson plans, which believe it or not happens, there's often large stretches of time without them. We actually have a full-time person whose job is to call through the literature every year and update our curriculum to make sure it's fresh and relevant. That's awesome. And then on the flip side, you know, when you provide that much structure for the sick with a therapist example, you know, it frees up a lot of their time, right? They don't have to spend time thinking, planning, gathering resources and materials, even on the documentation. And I, I know you guys have a little bit more standardization there than most programs. And so that gets you in front of patients more, right? And so it's cost savings, but it's also that's where you want your therapist to be, right? The more time they're with patients, the, the better. Yeah, and I think that that's an important point. So first of all, all of our lessons are taught by licensed clinicians, and typically we require a, a master's level clinician. At some of our more rural facilities where it might be hard to recruit such people, we accept bachelor's level clinicians, but we do always hold the line that you have to have a license, and most of our facilities, the therapists are all master's level. We also, one thing that we do that's different from other programs is we separate group therapists from individual therapists. So if you're a therapist at Landmark, you're either teaching group or you have an individual caseload, you never have both, which again, drives home the point about specialization. My group therapists, because they don't have to plan their lessons, because they don't have to write their own materials, because they can take the lesson plan and copy and paste it into the chart 
and, and they only really have to add a couple sentences about how the individual patient reacted to the particular lesson plan, um, they actually teach group 30 hours per week. So 75% utilization of your group therapists is really, really good. Before we made this initiative to standardize our, our curriculum and, and separate group from individual, even we were only at you know 50 to 60% utilization. And I've seen uh, utilization rates at other treatment centers closer to like 40%. Um, so if you're going from 40% to 60%, you're basically cutting the number of therapists that you need in half. Um, which is a huge win. And, it, and it's, you're able to do that to save money while also delivering better care to the patients because they get more time with their therapist. Yeah, I love that example. We've literally gone into facilities with a 25% utilization rate of therapists in terms of patient face time. And, you know, to me, that's just shocking that <laughs> like you're paying people just to really not have a whole lot to do. But so that's an interesting question, I think, to follow up on. We can get into a little bit of the recruitment and staffing. And you guys are doing something innovative there. You guys just had an article in the Behavioral Health Business Review. It's it's interesting because like the example I have with the client that we went into with 25% utilization, you know, I'm like, you guys, you guys just got up this utilization here. And they said that they got too much pushback from the therapists. And so you have these kind of like institutional imperatives that kind of come into place. And so I'm just really kind of curious in your perspective around, okay, you're asking clinicians to have more face time. How does that help or hurt from a recruitment and retention standpoint? And then anything else you're doing around recruitment and retention that might be interesting? Yeah, I don't know that I'm the best person because we tend to hire a lot of people who are early in their career and they don't really know another way. I think the hardest thing is once you give a privilege to someone, it's very hard to take that back. Um, whereas if they don't know anything else, they don't feel like they've lost anything. So that's one of the reasons I've always been so reticent to take over other programs. Um, almost all of our growth with one exception has been strictly organic. And even the one acquisition that we did, I mean, the, the building had a census of six the day that I took over and, and pretty much changed up all of the staff. So I, I think that the answer is I, I purposely try to hire people who do not come from my competitors because my standards are, are typically a lot higher. Just as one example, I have three empty beds across 660 total right now. And if you look over the past several months, we're running at 99% occupancy very consistently, um, which is not the norm. And it's not an accident that my chief revenue officer never worked a day in healthcare in his life. He came from uh, for-profit education. And I don't think anyone on my marketing team ever uh, worked in, in behavioral health either. And so when they don't know that what the standard should be, then they're able to respond much better to what I think the standard should be. And I think that we've proven that it's attainable, but so much of our potential is limited by our own belief about what the potential is. And so if you've always done something a certain way, it actually is very difficult to set the bar higher without that kind of pushback. So that's the answer to the first part of your question. Um, in terms of the second part of your question, I think what you're talking about is our escalator program. So yeah. every role at Landmark Recovery, we start off uh, employees at the same base rate of pay and then they have regular salary increases at six months, one year, and two years. And by the end of two years, you're getting paid 25% more than when you started on average. It's not an exact 25%, but it's about that. And the reason that I did it is one, I do believe it's the right thing to do. I, I want to be a company where people can grow and, and feel like we're taking care of them and their families and um, you know that if they work hard, they've got a shot. And the other reason is I just got so sick and tired of people going to the place next door for an extra dollar. And I was like, look, like if I tell you, maybe I can't give you a dollar this second, but I'm going to give you $2 in a couple months. Um, not everyone's going to take that gamble or, or that, that offer, but the people who want to be there and, and who are probably the good fit for the culture, they tend to respond well. And so we've actually seen our turnover rate go down substantially since we introduced the escalator program. And, you know, in today's economy, especially it's, it's really helped us. And, uh, you know, and then of course, even our entry level of pay is, is fairly competitive. Like my, my patient engagement specialist and, all the other entry-level roles start at $16 an hour. And, you know, just top to bottom, um, I'm pretty proud of what we're able to do with compensation. 
And we really haven't had a challenge hiring people, even in this economy, uh, except for nurses, which I can't do very much about. Nurses are in very high demand. And every time I think I've got it right, I find out that uh, I have to increase the escalators once again because the market's just moving so quickly. Yeah, I really like your examples around setting the culture. And I know that's important and, and really a big part of your philosophy you know, because, I mean, one, I just recalls a story to mind of um, Facebook recently uh, removed its free steak program on their campus and Facebook workers were up in arms. They were so upset that they no longer get free steak dinners every night, <laughs> you know, so it speaks to your point of just expectations and how ridiculous it can be. But then psychologically, people get really upset if something's removed, no matter how ridiculous the, the privilege may be, right? And then internally, like at Circle Social, for example, for all of our content writers, I have super high expectations. And I've found similar to you, especially recently, that hiring people without a background is more helpful because, you know, if I bring in people from these other organizations, they will have this expectation that they don't have to produce almost anything in a given day. Whereas like, so, I mean, I'm a bit of a prolific writer, which I think a lot of listeners know, you know, I'll write 3000 words an hour. So I, I write a massive amount of content very quickly. I don't necessarily expect that level of writing from the team, but I definitely have higher expectations than any other agency I know. And you can write really high quality content and still have a high expectation in terms of production. And I think we just don't challenge our, our staff and our teams a lot of the time in that regard. And so, I, so how do you think, because you have a sociology background and we've spoken about this before, but how do you think about building that culture and then what kind of intentionality do you put behind it as you're hiring and putting these uh, recruitment and retention processes into place? Yeah, another good question. Um, I think, first of all, culture is everything to me. If you look on my LinkedIn profile, I go so far as to say that culture is the only sustainable advantage in healthcare. And we're an organization where we don't just have core values that we put on a, you know, placard somewhere that we have been very thoughtful about creating rituals and interactions that reinforce our culture at every turn. So, you know, we're passionate, authentic, courageous, uncompromising in pursuit of excellence. And those aren't just words on a page. That's actually things that we evaluate you on. That's things that we talk about in our town halls, like who exhibited the values the best this month. And, you know, even in our manager meetings every week, you know, we're doing everything through um, one of those lenses. And, you know, in terms of recruiting, uh, I think our recruiting is maybe the most wild thing about Landmark. As an example, I never look at someone's resume. I purposefully do not look at anyone's resume until after I've interviewed them because I found myself sometimes reading a resume and getting so excited about someone and then they don't interview in a way that is conducive to our culture and I hire them anyway and then they don't work out. So, you know, we really are pretty good about looking at a person holistically um, we have this psychological system called Thrive Types, which we got from a consultant out of Seattle that helps identify what motivates a person, what's their pattern of attention, and kind of how do they interact with other people. And, and it gives us kind of a framework to match the right pattern of attention and the right motivation to the right role within the organization. So like I said, I, I would venture that I'm the only behavioral health organization in the country where zero members of my executive team worked at a competitor before coming here. And in fact, of the nine, only two of them had worked in healthcare at all prior and none of them, neither of them was an executive level person. So it's different. And again, it, it probably wouldn't work if it weren't for, you know, I have kind of a natural knack for reading people and getting to know people and, and figuring out what's going to work and what's not. Um, so it's not something that I would strongly recommend uh, gets replicated everywhere, but it works really well for us. And it's really allowed us to bring in people who really care about what we're doing and really believe in landmarks specifically, as opposed to the field more generally. Um, and just as one side effect, we're actually friends. Like on my executive team, I had everyone down to my house in Florida last week for kind of a retreat thing. I have them over, you know, probably once a month for kind of a movie and pizza night. And, you know, I would say if you were to list my five best friends in life, probably three of them work for me. 
And that's pretty different. And again, it's, it's something that would probably work terribly for some leaders. But for me, I actually tried to kind of keep my personal life and work life separate early in my career. And it just didn't work. You know, I'm someone who I have to feel safe. I have to be authentic. And I like working with people who I'm friends with. So that's kind of how I do it. It's really interesting. I don't think I've ever heard that before because there's there's those challenges, right, of mixing those two worlds. And especially if there's things going south, right, it can be complicated. It's really interesting. Well, I appreciate you sharing that. On the on the retention and the recruitment question, I 100% agree with you. Everything values are everything. Value and culture is everything. Like so, for every single hire that we have at Circle Social, our first questions are, you know, what's your interest in addiction and mental health? Why do you want to help people? And then second, why do you want to work particularly at Circle Social? Like we don't even ask any role-related questions until those two first ones are answered. And if they don't answer those in a way that we think aligns with our values, then the interview just ends. <laughs> but I think it's critical to having that success and, and building the team in the way that you want. Yeah, and I, I would take that a step further in that you know my recruiting team will do what we call technical interviews to kind of measure your skills. And it's mm-hmm. assumed that when you get to the hiring manager, everyone's been screened so that they could do the job. And so our interviews are almost entirely kind of off the wall, open-ended questions. Um, Just as some examples, like we say, you know, if you were in the movie Top Gun, would you see yourself as the fighter pilot, the commander, or would you be the reporter who wrote about the battle the next day? And what we're measuring there is a candidate's tenacity. In most roles, not all roles, we're looking for someone who wants to be in the thick of the battle and who, you know, their fight or flight response is very much geared towards being a fighter. And that's the type of person, you know, tenacity is really, really important to our DNA. You know, whereas there are plenty of other organizations that are very successful that have maybe more of a, you know, collegial, softer kind of uh, DNA, and, and that's fine. But the key thing is knowing your DNA and really being thoughtful about the questions that you ask where there's not a clear right answer so that uh, candidates are really honest about who they are and what makes them tick. Yeah, I love that. You know, again, same thing here internally, a lot of, especially digital marketing agencies, I view as kind of fluffy, right? And there's ping pong tables and there's snack bars and there's people just kind of lounging around you know, whereas us, like we're very much heads down and get the work done because we're doing important work and we're, we're connecting patients to quality care. And I don't think we should be spending our time playing ping pong. You know, um, I understand why people build cultures like that, but it's not our culture. And so I try to find people that are, are looking for, you know, doing the work and really advancing a mission and a cause where, it, which is challenging, right? Because nowadays, a lot of people I feel are looking to do maybe as little as possible and get paid as much as possible to do so, or they're looking for something that aligns with their values, but you know, they, they don't want, they, they prioritize their own personal life first and they want to show up late and they want to take breaks whenever they want and, you know, play their ping pong. And I, I don't care for that mentality in the workplace. I, I mean, I think one of my sayings is there's only two things I can't change, and that's IQ and worldview. So those are really the two things that we hone in on in the interview process, intellectual horsepower. I find it's usually easier to take a smart person with no experience and mold that person into what I want than a not a smart person who has decades of experience. And then worldview Again, there's no right or wrong worldview, but I found that when we're not spending time fighting with each other because we have fundamentally different beliefs about the way the world should be, um, we get our work done faster. So again, that goes back to values and why values are important. Ultimately, it's because you want people who are rowing together and who have the same basic view of the world and, and how the world should work. And, you know, that doesn't mean that we're all Republicans or we're all Democrats or we're all Christians or we're all Muslims or anything like that by no means. But in terms of, you know, valuing the patient, in terms of we are uncompromising in pursuit of excellence, that there is no room for compromise there, that you got to stay until eight o'clock to get something done, you do it. Those are all things that really matter and it doesn't make them right, but it makes them right for me and Mark. Yeah, 100% agree. 
Well, switching gears a little bit, you have a pretty strong real estate background as well from your experience in senior living and with um, your father as well. Can you talk to us a little bit how you view real estate? Because you've actually led a lot of the real estate acquisition for Landmark, at least initially. So how how do you approach that? Yeah, that's maybe a, a, a very critical advantage compared to our competitors that I don't touch a building if I can't get in for under $100,000 a bed uh, fully baked. So acquisition costs, renovation costs, development costs, even the overhead um, that we have necessary to get the project done. You know, and you look at a lot of my competitors and they're anywhere from 150 to 250 a bed. And that's an expense that you're going to be paying for as long as you're in business. And that's a central tenant to our cost structure. And Also, because I came from senior living, I realized very quickly that if I could get in with the real estate investment trust that own almost everything in senior living, that I would have access to a very strong pipeline of uh, great buildings and great locations. So, um, you know, we have relationships with uh, Sabra, Wellpower, Care Trust, and, you know, we're in talks with Omega as well. And I, it's really allowed me, I mean, I must come across, you know, six or seven real great opportunities every week for conversion to treatment. And, you know, we pretty much only touch at this point, assisted living and nursing home buildings that just don't work for their primary use anymore. For whatever reason, maybe they have shared bathrooms, maybe the building looks outdated, maybe there's too much competition in the market, whatever it is but they work really great for our purposes. And we kind of have it down to a science of what rooms have to be converted to offices and what rooms have to be converted to classrooms and um, the whole nine yards. So it actually becomes very efficient that we can very quickly come up with a plan for a new building of, you know, how to make it function as a treatment center. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a very unique advantage that you guys have within the, the, the space. And then again, not related, but it's a unique skill set for, I think, an executive in the space. You also really have a good grasp of the marketing and your marketing, your numbers, you know, and, and I can honestly say that you guys do a phenomenal job, right? You guys, well, we would love to work with you guys. Like you honestly don't need us. And I can't say that about a lot of operators that we know. So how do you think about marketing? And then how, how has you, have you seen it work for you, especially going back to that point they just had that you guys are 99% full with 650 plus beds, which um, is not the case for, you know, some other providers of your size. Yeah. And I would say, especially in marketing, as you well know, there isn't a one-size-fits-all approach, and there can't be, um, because if everyone did the same thing, it wouldn't work. But what we've really honed in on is going direct to consumer and telling a story. Um, And what that really looks like is, you know, we spend quite a lot of money on advertising, on TV, radio, billboards. I spend almost nothing on pay-per-click. I definitely do SEO, and I think our SEO is pretty good. I wouldn't say we're the best. But it's really making sure that when people search for us, that we are top of, you know, at the, we show up, but getting people to search for landmark as opposed to treatment center is really core to our strategy. Um, Just as an example, in Louisville, Kentucky, where we've been the longest, there's something like five times as many people every month that search for landmark recovery specifically versus all of the other treatment words that we track um, combined. And it just goes to show you that there's still a lot of people who need help, but they don't know what to call the thing that they need. You know, treatment center isn't yet in common parlance in, in middle-class America. You know, people call it different things. People call it rehab. People call it treatment. People call it drug treatment. Some people just don't even know that it exists. So we're really very thoughtful about A, letting people know that we exist and B, what story do we want to tell, you know, to get people really excited about our value proposition and how we can help. And, you know, and I, I think it, it seems to be working. So I want to think of that a little bit, because as you know, it's a soapbox of mine, like it drives me nuts, the amount of money that people spend on PPC. And I'm not against PPC, it can be a useful part of the strategy, but it should not be what you're dumping most of your money into, which is what a lot of providers want to do. Because there's that immediate gratification, right? Click, call, admission. I can see it. And I can't see it when I'm doing paid media on TV, radio, Facebook, et cetera. You know, like a a primary metric for us at Circle Social is tracking exactly what you talked about, right? What are brand searches? And when we start diversifying in our channels, we start to see those brand searches go up and up and up 
versus just depending on people randomly searching for treatment and trying to get in front of them at the right time. So I guess, why, why do you think you started thinking in that direction? Was that something that you started off with? Is that something that you learned over time? And then being the executive lead in the company, you know, how, how do you hold your marketing team accountable for results when you can't granularly track final attribution? Yeah, that's a good point. No, I didn't start off that way. Uh, start For starters, uh, I couldn't afford to. Um, so when you're a single facility operation, you might not be able to spend, you know, $200,000 a month on branding or, or whatever it is, you know, because you just don't have the beds to, to spread the wealth. And that's honestly one of the biggest advantages of having Medicaid is I can spend the same amount of money and amortize it over double the number of beds, which is huge. But it wasn't just about money. First of all, I'm, I'm very fortunate that I have Justin Hartman, who's my chief revenue officer. And, and how do I hold people accountable? I have Justin and you don't. Um, <laughs> and, um, you know, he's just exceptional at what he does. And, and he is, you know, one of my good friends as well. But Justin was the one who actually brought to me, I don't know, I feel like it was fall of 2018, winter of 2019. I don't know when it was. It's been so many years. He was the one who said, hey, look at this, you know, because we were up on TV in Louisville, just frankly, because I had a good relationship with the lady at the ABC affiliate in town. And we were spending, you know, a little bit of money, not a lot. Um, but he was like, hey, look, like there's all these searches for landmark recovery. And in fact, there are more people searching for landmark than all these other terms that we care so much about. And so that kind of was the genesis of the hypothesis of maybe the end game is brand. And so we started putting more money into brand and we spent quite a lot of money to actually professionalize the brand and, and be systematic in how we approach brand. And, um, you know, interesting things started happening. You know, I would say before the branding campaign, you know, we were doing well, we were like 85 to 90% occupied, but we weren't knocking it out of the park. And within three or four months of really pushing brand, we were full, you know, almost every single day. And then we tried it in Indianapolis, which was a really tough market. There's a lot of competition in Indianapolis and, you know, Recovery Centers of America is there and whatever. Um, and same thing, whereas we were at a census of around 50 before brand, within three or four months, we were up to 72 out of 72. So that's really when we kind of had this light bulb moment of, hey, if we lead with our brand, we have predictable lead flow and we know how long it's going to take us to uh, get to where we want to go. So, so that's kind of the story there. And, you know, again, I, I want to be sensitive to the fact that not everyone can do that and not everyone needs to do that. I mean, you know, just as an example, my facility in Oklahoma, I don't spend any money on brand because I have, you know, a great uh, business development team. They have great relationships with native tribes and, hospitals and, and employers and just so happens that we can stay full there without spending a dime on branding. Um, now, eventually, you know, I'm looking for other buildings in Oklahoma because I still think brand matters and, and I still want to be branded in as many markets as possible. But the point is, you don't need to do that. It's one avenue among many, but it's the primary avenue for our organization. Yeah, yeah, I love it. So we've talked a lot about your successes, right? A lot of yes. innovative ideas, I think, that are, are really work, and they're clearly working. It's not just theory; like you've seen it work in practice. What challenges have you had, or are there things that you've tried <laughs> that didn't work that you learned from? Oh my gosh, Nick! <laughs> How long do you have? So there's a couple stories that come to mind. Number one, the first time that we tried to expand, we went to Oklahoma City, and we opened a treatment center, and we didn't hire any consultants. We didn't really talk to anyone at the state. We just read the regulations and did what we thought was right. Well, there's a rule in Oklahoma about smoking cessation. So there, for whatever reason, they have a bee in their bonnet about no nicotine anywhere, anytime in treatment, which doesn't always go over very well with uh, people in recovery. So we were offering smoking cessation at time of intake because we, we thought that's what we needed to do. The state came in and said, no, you actually need every time your patient sees any sort of person with a license, whether it's a nurse, whether it's a therapist, whatever, you have to document that you offer to help them quit smoking, which is a little ridiculous, but whatever. But, and that actually was a major violation in the state of Oklahoma. It was up there with, you know, rape, death, 
things like that. And so we actually were shut down for six months and we lost $2 million that we never got back because we never obtained our permanent license simply because we weren't offering smoking cessation every time we saw patients, right? Wow. And, you know, certainly we've learned from that. And, you know, we, we created this dossier of every state in America and what the licensing requirements were. And we kind of hired a, a law firm to actually make contact and, and figure out what, what was driving this in every state. So it hasn't happened to us again, but again, no matter in, in a kind of balkanized licensing regime like we have in the United States where everything is completely different, it's almost inevitable that you're going to get bitten somewhere. And the most recent example is in Connecticut. We bought a facility in Connecticut. We did the renovation. We went to go apply for a license and we found out that Connecticut is a certificate of need state. And, and it's actually one of the harder CONs to get. And so we've had this facility in London that we've been sitting on for close to a year at this point, just because we didn't go through the CON process on the front end. Now, thankfully, this story ended better than Oklahoma. We did receive our CON um, and we will be opening this fall. But again, it's just, it, it feels like when you're trying to do big things and you have a bias towards action, like our organization does, the downside is sometimes you make mistakes like that. You know, I'll say another thing, our construction and development process, um, as you mentioned, my father cut his teeth in real estate development, very proud developer, you know, built a lot of apartments and condos in the south end of Boston and, you know, oversaw everything himself. His system worked really great when we were doing two or three buildings a year. And when we went to trying to do 12 and then 24 a year, it completely fell apart. And, you know, to make things worse, his right-hand man, Bill, uh, who had worked with him since 1993, he got uh, cancer and he actually passed away last September in the middle of this expansion. And so we really have spent the past six months completely retooling and professionalizing how we do construction and development because we were running into so many delays where we didn't research what was needed to get the certificate of occupancy or we didn't know how to get a building permit. And the way that it worked in Boston was not the way that it worked in Pensacola, was not the way that it worked in Milwaukee. And, um, you know, we were really kind of over our heads. So that's maybe a third example of, you know, something that really didn't go great. And, you know, I think that the, the thing is all organizations are going to have hiccups, bumps in the road, challenges, and, and even really bad challenges, like losing $2 million on your second facility when you have no outside investors and it's just your family, like that hurt, that still hurts me, man. But I think the important thing is to be resilient and it's how you respond that really defines your character. So. So great, great segue there. So how have you seen your role grow and change, you know, as you started from one facility to two and then now 10 plus, you know, how, how has your role evolved? Oh, my Lord. Um, so, you know, in the beginning, I was in Louisville, you know, three days a week or four days a week, every single week. And almost every decision day to day rolled up to me and we were learning. So I couldn't standardize things because I didn't know what worked and what didn't work. I think going from two to three facilities actually was bigger than going from one to two because at three, I could no longer keep my hands on everything. So, um, you know, I, and I knew that was coming. So I, I kind of figured out what were the metrics that really drove the bus and um, what should those metrics be. And um, we have very robust reporting throughout the organization uh, about all of our KPIs and, and what matters. Um, and so that kind of allowed me to keep a pulse without being physically present, but I was still present quite a lot. At any time there was a crisis, I went in and I handled it and I knew all the managers at least. And, you know, today I barely know everyone in the office, which is so weird because, you know, when we started, we had, you know, five or six of us in headquarters and, you know, now we have uh, 165 and I can't know everyone. So my role now is mostly leading my executive team and setting the vision of where we want to be 10, 20, 30 years from now, and really just growing the, them as people. Um, and I think actually what we're in the middle of right now, even, is transitioning from a hub and spoke model where everyone has great relationships with Matt, but things 
the critical strategic decisions still roll up to me, to more of a team model where the more important relationships are within the team as opposed to between each individual and me, kind of pushing more ownership of execution and even strategy onto the team as opposed to just me. It's interesting. You made a comment to me the other week saying, you know, I set the vision, but I'm really dependent on my leadership team for execution and then doing things well. And you really just have to hire the right people and and let them do what they're good at. Do you want to elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that goes back to, you know, we are good friends and there's a risk to that because if things go bad, it gets awkward. Right. But I I'm not friends with people until I'm confident that they're the right person, which I've gotten pretty good at figuring out who's going to be the right person, but it still takes at least 90 days to feel comfortable, right? But once you have that, then you're starting off with the assumption that, hey, I'm dealing with a smart, competent, kind person who believes what I believe about how the world should work. So if there's a problem, it's not that this person's an idiot, it's something else, right? And it's either a knowledge issue where they don't know something that's really critical, which is easily fixed. It could be a personal issue. Maybe they're going through something in their marriage or maybe one of their kids is sick or, or something. And, or maybe it's a growth issue. Like maybe they don't know how to have hard conversations to hold their people accountable. Um, Maybe they don't know how to develop leaders underneath them. Um, And I think when, because I have those relationships with every member of my team, Uh, It gives everyone kind of the space and freedom to not feel like their head is on the chopping block anytime something goes wrong, which really allows us to diagnose the problem and fix it. And, you know, I mean, frankly, I I don't have a ton of problems, you know, because of it. I mean, you know, my building's mostly stay full. My UR is good. My RCM is good. You know, we... Uh, we pretty much perform, but when we don't, there's safety to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. Really important. I agree with you. Uh, so what do you see as like the largest challenges that Landmark's facing today? And then how are you guys kind of working to address those? Yeah. Well, at a micro level, um, if you know any nurses who are looking for jobs, uh, <laughs> please send them my way. Yeah. The nursing market is just wild. Um, right. And um, that's kind of, top of mind for everyone is, you know, how do we hire enough nurses to deliver our care? And at a more macro level, I mean, we're wading into waters that no one, to my knowledge, has ever done before. I mean, no one's opened 10 facilities in a year. No one's opened 20. Um, And we're planning to do 10 this year, 20 next year. And, you know, we've spent two years documenting the crap out of every last thing that goes into opening a building, training people, marketing. Um, and I'm not really concerned about filling buildings, really. I, I have a lot of confidence in that. But scaling leaders and maintaining the core of who we are in our culture when you're growing at that breakneck of a pace um, is uh, is daunting. And in terms of what we're doing, like I said, I mean, we've been gearing, this has been the plan for two years and we've been as thoughtful as I know how to be about anticipating every problem. We had kind of a dry run last winter when we opened three facilities in three months and it seemed like it went well, but to some degree you can't prepare. I can't anticipate every problem that's gonna come my way. I just have to have the confidence in my team and empower the team to own their stuff and, and trust that they're going to solve the problem. And uh, yeah, so that's, that's kind of in, in the near term, the biggest risk. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I'll be, I'll be very interested in watching that evolve because you'll be accomplishing something as you said that no one's actually been able to do yet. Right. I mean, to your point, when you talk about the large providers in the space, you're talking about people that maybe have a thousand beds, right. On, on the high side. And then those guys tend to be mostly Medicaid. If you're talking about like inpatient where it's like mostly commercial 600 to 800 beds max, but they're having trouble filling them. Right. So I think there's, there's a lot to be said for the way that you guys operate, just the operational efficiencies you have in place, the culture you've built and, and just the way that you very thoughtfully and intentionally expand 
um, rather than kind of doing it willy nilly, which is what happened in the past and has made it challenging for some of the other providers. You know, you've got a lot of good leadership, a lot of good people in place, but they're dealing with the legacy model. That's, it's a bit unwieldy sometimes. Yeah, for sure. Um, and ask me in a year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We'll have to reconnect on it. Maybe we can have you back on the show. So I, I really appreciate all the time. I mean, just wonderful conversation. I think you're, you're got your finger on, um, I wouldn't say the pulse of the industry. I, I think that you are actually looking beyond where the industry currently is. And I think you've got a vision for the future that's accurate. It's achievable. And, and I can tell, you know, that you've got that passion. So really appreciate you sharing. If someone wanted to get in contact with you or just landmark, what would be the best way to do that? Oh, gosh. Um, well, you know, I mean, my email is matt.boyle at landmarkrecovery.com. I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, if you tell me the name of your favorite book, I will respond to you. If you don't, I probably won't because that's my rule. And, um, you know, I, I try to be as, as humble and as thoughtful as I can be in, in the responses. Um, and, you know, in terms of the organization, I guess I'm a good place to start and I'll put you in touch with the right person. You can always call our call center, but, you know, I, I assume people wouldn't want to do that. Um, so, yeah, you can reach out to me. All right. Well, thank you so much, Matt. I really appreciate it. For all our listeners out there, this is the Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jaworski, and we'll see you guys next time. Thank you.